This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning, a Sunday morning by design. We're in Santa Barbara, a California town that's come to be known as the American Riviera. And this magnificent estate we're calling home is named El Faradis, or Tropical Paradise. And it truly is that. It's cozy by today's mega mansion standards, a mere 10,000 square feet situated on 10 acres, surrounded by lush gardens and towering palms, all in the shadow of the Santa Ynez Mountains. A century ago, when this home was built, life was simpler. No laptops, smartphones, or internet. Now all that tech tracks our every move and monitors every heartbeat. A mixed blessing, to be sure. But as David Pogue discovers, more and more of us see all this high-tech as highly convenient. Fitness trackers have come a long way since they just counted steps. We can pick up people's illness at or before symptoms from a simple smartwatch. We're 98% accurate in detecting atrial fibrillation, 99% accurate in detecting sinus rhythm. Has this feature saved any lives? Almost every day. Later on Sunday morning, 
the new world of disease detection on your wrist. Save room for seconds. Serena Altschul tells us about one of the hottest fashion trends around. In the world of fashion, one of the newest trends is old. Old clothes, that is. It's a badge of honor. It is a badge of honor now to be wearing secondhand. The awareness of sustainability is growing. Stylish secondhand shopping, later on Sunday morning. Santa Barbara is considered one of the best surf spots in the country. Ahead this morning, Tracy Smith says, surf's up. Ask any surfer, the right board can mean the difference between a bitchin' barrel ride or getting worked. Each board has its own characteristics. It's like snowflakes, no two are alike. I agree. They're shaped. Yeah, it's a good analogy. And we are totally stoked to show you the sickest sticks coming up on Sunday morning. We'll have those stories and more on this Sunday morning by design. And we'll be back in a moment. Nestled in the Montecito Hills above Santa Barbara, El Ferretas is an oasis of tranquility and class. Designed by famed architect Bertram Goodhue for New York real estate tycoon James Waldron Gillespie, the home was completed in 1906. Gillespie fell in love with the 10-acre property because the climate reminded him of the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean inspired the design, too, with Roman, Middle Eastern, and European influences all around. Lights with Swarovski crystals are a recent addition, alongside custom furniture replicating originals seen in Buckingham Palace. Outside, the lush landscape features more than 100 different types of trees, including one of Montecito's largest fig trees. A perfect setting, no doubt, for the silver screen, as Al Pacino's Florida mansion in the 1983 gangster film, Scarface. Other familiar faces, Albert Einstein, Winston Churchill, and John F. Kennedy have all paid visits to El Ferretas. And this morning, so do we. It's called The Conversation Room. Guests chatted here, while it's rumored the home's original owner listened in from a secret passage. Of course, these days, David Pogue tells us, we've got plenty of devices already doing just that. These days, health trackers have gotten a lot more sophisticated and a lot more wearable. These smartwatches from companies like Fitbit and Apple are teeming with tiny sensors that display their findings on your smartphone. So this looks like a list of all the things that the watch can detect. Exactly. Low heart rate, high heart rate, irregular heart. Right. And blood we, oxygen. Blood oxygen, walking steadiness, headphone notifications, noise notifications, and even hand washing, which we can detect. And of course, your pulse rate. 94. That's 94. high, isn't it? It's on the higher side. So either you haven't drank enough water or you might be really stressed. I might be on national television, for example. And that could be a reason. 
Dr. Sumbul Desai is a physician and vice president of health at Apple. At the company's California headquarters, she demonstrated how an Apple Watch can warn you about dangerous sound levels, measure your cardio fitness. Yours is 28.6, and it is a little below average. Clearly, I've been very lazy, uh, busy, busy. And even perform an electrocardiogram. But the most life-changing talent of the latest smartwatches is brand new. They can give you early warning of medical problems. For example, if you're sleeping more or sleeping less than you used to, if your heart rate is at a different baseline heart rate than it was, those are early signs of things that may be going on. Without my having to check anything, it will actually tell, tell me if it discovers something alarming? It will. Another one is walking steadiness, which is if we notice changes in your gait, we can actually give you an early notification where you can do something about it. Then there's atrial fibrillation. It's a heart condition where your heart quivers instead of beating. As many as six million Americans have it, and it often leads to stroke. The problem is these episodes are intermittent, so your doctor's checkup might miss it. But your watch... You know, the watch is with you all the time. Our watch can detect if your heart is beating out of rhythm and will surface up a notification. Has this feature saved any lives? Almost every day. Their physicians are actually telling them, I'm so glad you showed up when you did because this really um, could have ended much differently. You don't drive your car around without a dashboard. Here we are as people. We're more important than cars, but we're running around without any sensors, most people. And we should be wearing these things, in my opinion, because they can alert you to early things. Stanford School of Medicine professor Michael Snyder is conducting several studies to see how far wearables can go in detecting disease. What's the complete list of conditions that a smartwatch might be able to one day detect? Infectious disease, anemia, even type 2 diabetes. And then in the future, I'm pretty confident there's other things, for sure heart conditions. We're working to see if we can detect cancer right now. Snyder got a taste of his own smartwatch medicine last month. On the day of a cross-country flight, he felt congested. His own research app alerted him of sudden changes in his breathing and heart rates. So I did a COVID test, and it turns out I was negative. So I went ahead and got on the plane. Big mistake. He did have COVID. I listened to my COVID test, and I should have listened to my smartwatch. And sure enough, in a Fitbit study involving 100,000 people, those metabolic changes predicted COVID three days before any symptoms appeared. Now, at the moment, Snyder's app can't tell what is causing your vital signs to go screwy. Right now, as I say, we can't tell the difference between certain kinds of stresses like workplace stress and mental stress versus a COVID, but in the future we will. I am here to say that these data are great. People who self-track are more likely to be connected to other people, and when they're connected to other people, they're more likely to be happier. University of Cambridge professor Gina Neff is the co-author of a book about self-tracking. Overall, she's a fan. But she does worry about who gets to see our medical data. Imagine devices that are being used in warehouses to determine if someone is moving fast enough. Imagine devices that you sign up for to help train you to be a safer driver, but it's instead used to raise your insurance premiums. These are scenarios that are used in companies today. At least Apple and Fitbit say that they can't see your data. 
I want to be completely clear that Apple does not have access to any health information for a user. It is on-device encrypted and in the user's control. You don't have some engineer that could look up David Pogue's blood oxygen level? Absolutely not. For Stanford's Michael Snyder, the promise of disease detection on your wrist is a goal well worth pursuing. 3.8 billion people on the planet have a smartphone. But if you compare that with a $50 smartwatch, you'd have a health monitoring system for 3.8 billion people. I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg on what's possible. The old Santa Barbara mission was founded by Spanish Franciscans in 1786. It's just one of the picturesque sites that helped put Santa Barbara on the map. The bells have been ringing at the mission for more than two centuries. But the first residents of this area date back thousands of years to the Chumash people. The town was named by the Spanish explorer, Sebastian Vizcaino, in 1602 for St. Barbara, the third century Christian martyr. When Spanish settlers arrived in the 18th century, they built, along with the Chumash, El Presidio, a fort to protect the California coast from foreign invasion. The nearby mission was built soon after, setting a Spanish architectural style that endures to this day. When an earthquake nearly destroyed the mission and much of the city in 1925, local visionaries ensured that Santa Barbara would rebuild and rebound in the same design. And did it ever. Soon this oceanfront jewel, two hours from Los Angeles, became known as the Hollywood to the North. Silent film pioneer Charlie Chaplin built California's first major movie studio here, Flying A Studios, producing hundreds of movies. In the coming years, this once sleepy seaside town became a place where people from all over would escape for fun in the sun. Chef Julia Child spent both her childhood and retirement on these beaches. Today, with its outdoor lifestyle, fresh seafood, and beautiful homes, Santa Barbara is the epitome of the California dream. With a gilded, hand-painted depiction of Alexander the Great and solid brass doors, the dining room at Alpharetus spares no design detail. But small can be beautiful, too, as Susan Spencer will be showing us throughout the morning. Ah. Oh, yeah. See, that clamps on very nicely. We're cruising nicely. now. Yeah. <laughs> Give Emily Johnson a few good cans. This is called a side-cut can opener. And she'll do a great opening act. There we go. Ah, there we go. You spend a lot of time thinking about can openers. Believe it or not, I do. <laughs> her uncanny knowledge of all things can opener comes from her job as senior editor at the food publication Epicurious, where she's tested dozens of them. What does testing day look like? 
It looks like me surrounded by an obscene number of can openers. <laughs> and you and just sit there and open cans? Yeah, cans and cans of chickpeas, white beans. Doesn't matter what. Cranking, 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 cranking. This is one that you rather like. Yeah, this is my favorite. After all that cranking, she has come to love the classic design with the little sawtoothed gear. She gets almost philosophical about it. Can you envision a kitchen without a can opener? No, I can't. The can opener is delightfully analog. It is a single-use item that people can't get out of owning. Americans have owned can openers for more than a century, the design evolving ever since the original model in 1858. I think the most interesting part of the can opener's history is that it was not invented until around 50 years after the invention of actual canning. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> <laughs> the cans were so thick, like 3 sixteenths of an inch sometimes. People had to use a hammer and chisel. To Literally? Open. Yes. I'm surprised they just didn't give up on the cans completely. I know. If they'd tried, Johnson might have told them to, well, can it. You can take these foods that will last forever in your pantry and make a whole meal out of them. Not without a can opener, you can't. Yeah, exactly. You need the can opener to get there. <laughs> it's a Sunday morning by design. From Santa Barbara, here again is Jane Pauley. Martha Teichner has the story of a very different sort of garden that towers above all the rest. What is it glowing in the dark? Not an office building. An art installation? No, those are rotisserie lettuce plants going around and around inside. It's a vertical farm in the middle of downtown Jackson, Wyoming. Jackson has a four-month growing season, and so we really wanted to extend that. What we had was this plot of land, 30 feet wide by 150 feet long. That's not very big for a farm. <laughs> Architect Nona Yahya is one of the founders of Vertical Harvest, which opened in 2016. So we decided, well, what if we go up? Could we make more food? This little tenth of an acre plot produces 100,000 pounds of produce a year, and not just lettuce. There's snow outside on the mountain, and we're still producing tomatoes for our community. And all kinds of microgreens. This is our edible flower program. This is kind of a little bit of our Willy Wonka part of the tour, where you never know what you're going to get. Mmm, those are really good. Peppery, right? Ooh, I like those. Vertical farming is possible because LED lighting has gotten cheaper and more efficient. The plants need very little water. They don't live in soil. They're fed solutions of nutrients, but practically no pesticides. What is the potential for vertical farms? I think they can achieve 100% food coverage for urban populations. In 2010, when now-retired Columbia University professor Dixon Pommier wrote this book and coined the phrase, vertical farms were all but non-existent. By 2026, vertical farming is expected to be a $10 billion a year industry worldwide. Can vertical farms answer the need in food deserts? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, if there's no vertical farm there, put one there. Vertical Harvest has just broken ground on a much larger facility near Portland, Maine, the first of 10 in the planning stages for cities around the country. We're never going to replace traditional agriculture, but we sure can innovate to supplement it. And then back to the idea of what local means. From farm to fork, we deliver our product within 24 hours. So instead of being trucked a thousand miles or so from Mexico or California, in Jackson, Wyoming, produce takes a two-mile van ride to Whole Foods, where it gets pride of place. Vertical Harvest has also redefined Jackson's notion of who can be a farmer. 19 of its 43 employees have mental or physical disabilities. I found my cream job. Meet Tim McLaurin, here with his proud dad. We are champions here at the greenhouse. Tim's dad has watched his son thrive at Vertical Harvest. Why was it important for you to have this job? It was so that I could actually feel appreciated. Amanda McFarland suffered a brain injury. Vertical Harvest is like a family. Here, at a new kind of family farm, feeding a community. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cashback events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's believed the very first surfboards date back to Peru some 5,000 years ago. As Tracy Smith tells us, surfboard design has come a long way. Nope, we're not in Kansas anymore. Surfing off the California coast is as popular as it's ever been. From the party wave riders at Malibu to the folks chilling at Doheny, where you can sit for hours in the lineup, just waiting for the right wave. And for that, you need just the right board. This one is big and wide, made out of foam. It's great for surfing little waves like this. In fact, just about anyone could ride it. But in surfing, it wasn't always that way. Surfing was once a sport reserved for Hawaiian royalty, who rode the waves on boards of solid wood that were long, narrow, and majestically heavy. It's 140 pounds. 140 pounds? So how did they but even get it out to the beach? If you're royalty, they carry it for you. <laughs> Patty Paniccia used to surf for a living, 
one of the few female pro surfers back in the 1970s, when the surfing world was mostly a boys club. This board would be about the 1940s. It's the first Today, time she's a trustee of the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center. It's got some mahogany in, in San Clemente. It's got a little more shape than the, than the older ones, right? Yes, it does. And this looks like it's heavy, too. Oh, it's not as heavy. I think this is about 55 pounds. <sighs> Still. Yeah. By the late 50s, boards got shorter and lighter. Let's go! And surfing had taken its place in the popular culture. Surfboard maker Hobie Alter, who started making boards with lightweight balsa wood, switched to polyurethane foam and helped take the sport to the next level. Hobie's Dana Point, California store is still thriving, and his namesake Hobie surfboards are still made the old school way. Shaper Gary Larson starts with a blank piece of foam and custom carves it for a surfer's specific needs. He'll angle the sides or rails to help a board stay put on a steep wave face, sharpen the nose for high performance turns, or carve a wider tail for stability. These are stringers, so these are wood. Some boards have thin strips of wood, called stringers, running down the middle for added stiffness and style. This model runs around $1,800, but each surfboard is different. I've had boards that I've tried to duplicate for myself, and each board has its own characteristics. It's like snowflakes, no two are alike I when agree. they're hand-shaped. Yeah, it's a good analogy. Don't get me wrong, you can buy a machine-made board, too. They're often cheaper and easier to ride. But they'll never have that certain something that a shaper puts into a board when they're making one just for you. I'm going to ask you a hippy-dippy question okay. now. Do these boards speak to you? <laughs> That's a common question. Yeah, I guess I do feel like there's a little more soul in a hand-shaped board. Of course, no matter how good a surfboard's design, it's only as good as the surfer and the waves that day. And every one of those is different, too. A lavish mansion perched on a seaside bluff, standing empty for decades. We pay a visit to Bellasguardo. It's been the talk of Santa Barbara. What's become of the hideaway on the hill? Set high above 1,000 feet of coastline, Bellasquarto, Italian for beautiful lookout, was purchased by copper magnate Senator William Clark in 1923. He died two years later. The Italianate home on the 23-acre property was then torn down and in 1933, Clark's widow, Anna, built the lavish, solid concrete home that remains today. One of the richest families of the Gilded Age, the Clarks, including daughter Huguette, used the home solely as a summer getaway. The shy Huguette took to art, spending her sun-filled days painting. Mysteriously, the family last visited Bellasquardo in 1953. Ten years later, when Huguette inherited the 23-acre estate, she gave the staff instructions to never change a thing. Custom coverings protected the furniture, 
as the house sat empty for nearly 70 years, costing some $40,000 a month to maintain. Huguette never returned to Santa Barbara. She spent much of her later life in a New York hospital, dying in 2011 at 104. Since then, intrigue has grown over what will happen to Bella Squarto after a New York Times best-selling book. Today, some of Huguette's paintings are on display in a new exhibit at the Santa Barbara Historical Museum. And later this year, the foundation that now runs Bella Squarto will open the doors to tours for the first time, finally giving the public a chance to see the beautiful lookout for themselves. The paperclip was invented more than 120 years ago. It hasn't changed much since then, proof of its classic design. Susan Spencer puts it all together. James Ward has an unusual attachment to paper clips. So when you look at a paper clip, you see a little wire sculpture? It's a piece of art, but it's also a piece of useful art. And like any serious art appreciator, these are your classic paper clips. He is also a collector. There's these ones, which are known as owl paper clips. These are crossover clips. That's a paper clip? How many paper clips do you think you own? Well, if a box is a hundred paper clips, then we're getting in tens of thousands of individual paper clips. That's a staggering number of paper clips. The London-based author wrote a book on the subject simply because he felt the need for a definitive work. And at least one paperclip is always on him. You have a paperclip tattoo? I, I do. Had anyone ever come into the tattoo parlor before this and ask for a tattoo of a paperclip? I don't think so. <laughs> that paperclip design is the so-called gem, which dates back more than a century. Though there have been numerous different styles, it's that gem that brings out the poet in Ward. It is quite a sort of a beautiful object. It almost suggests a kind of eternity, but with each. And in a way, it's sort of a broken eternity. Boy, you're reading a lot into a paperclip. <laughs> eternity or not, one thing is certain, the paperclip is an office staple. Not to be confused with the office stapler. If you had to communicate one thought about paperclips as the, one of the world's foremost authorities, what would that be? Treasure them, think about them, use them, and reflect on them. This is close to a religious experience, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it does its job and it looks beautiful. It's like that's all you can ask from a piece of design. It's one of the hottest trends in fashion. Without a second to spare, here's Serena Altschul. I think I got this for like 40 bucks. Alia Alberwani loves fashion, but hardly ever pays full price. What portion of your wardrobe would you say is secondhand? About 60 to 70% of my, my closet is, is uh, secondhand. You can find things that 
maybe somebody bought at full price and they never wore it and you get to have it for a quarter of the price. And as someone who loves fashion, there's no better feeling. <laughs> Al Barwani, a Houston-based doctor, is one of many hanging up old shopping habits. Got this trench coat that I love that I also thrifted. Secondhand shopping is one of fashion's fastest growing trends. How big is the secondhand clothing market? It's a, a $35 billion market and growing. Billion. Billion. It's really, really been catching fire lately. Chris Homer is co-founder and chief operating officer of ThreadUp. It's one of dozens of web-based consignment shops allowing consumers to buy and sell unwanted clothing. We're listing items every minute of every day, all day long. 100,000 plus items a day. Instead of digging through racks of clothes, consumers can browse right on their phones. The clothes, on the other hand, are held at thread-up distribution sites around the country, where they're inspected, photographed, and eventually shipped to new owners. Did things pick up even more during the pandemic? Yes, all of a sudden having time to clean out at home, as well as wanting to change things out for things that are more casual and comfortable. I think that was one element. Another is the generational shift where Gen Z and millennials are really becoming native thrifters in how they consume. The importance of the environmental impact that people are having really has become even more in the forefront of people's minds. Right now, the fashion industry is probably the third most polluting industry. It emits about five to maybe 10% of the world's carbon. Allison Summer is Vice President of Public Affairs and Business Development at The Real Real, an online and brick-and-mortar high-end consignment shop. So if you had a magic wand and you could change something in the fashion industry today, what's the first thing you would do? Produce less. Produce less. We have too many clothes. In fact, about 85% of clothing in the U.S., including donations, ends up in incinerators or landfills, mostly overseas. 95% of the items that hit a landfill could be reworn in their current form. So it's really just a problem of not necessarily knowing what else to do with an item that you're not using anymore. Summer says she hopes this inspires consumers to rethink their own shopping style. See you later. In a way, you guys broke the hardest part of the cycle, which is the stigma of clothes being bought a second time. It's cool to wear secondhand now. You're finding a beautiful item that you feel good in, that you got a great deal on, and that's helping the planet. Watch the scoop. Ask Susan Spencer. We're going to really... Scoop this up here. Nicely done. Oh, yes. Okay. Then here we go. When it comes to ice cream. Now that's ah. a nice looking scoop right there. <laughs> I'm blown away. Manish Vora knows the scoop. There's nothing that makes more people happy than ice cream on a day to day basis. But what makes Vora happy is the ice cream scooper. There really are things of art. There's brilliance in the simplicity of this. It's something that is so utilitarian, but so timeless, still is a beautiful object. At the Museum of Ice Cream in New York City, which Vora co-founded, proud scoopers stand eight feet tall in a sort of Willy Wonka-style mini theme park. High five, there. go okay, for there it. There we go. Complete with a pool <laughs> of giant sprinkles. But back to the scooper. 
The design we know and love today, with its built-in scraper, is from 1897. African-American businessman and inventor Alfred Crowley dreamed it up and got a patent for it. Alfred Crowley is our Thomas Edison at the Museum of Ice Cream. And why not? To his genius, we owe the perfect scoop of ice cream. Why does it matter if ice cream is in a perfect little ball? I truly believe that it tastes better when that scoop is <laughs> no, great. Don't. I actually do. <laughs> no, taste. you could use a crowbar, it would taste the same. Well, trust me. <laughs> uh, there's studies around savoring, whether you really appreciate it. And so aesthetics do matter. The way it looks ties into the way your brain reacts to ice cream. Nice, beautiful. Remember that the next time you head to your freezer for a snack. We can do a little cheers. <laughs> cheers. You're right. It tastes better when it's perfectly formed. Yeah, oh, I Definitely. agree. We yeah, agree. It's a big difference. I'm Jane Pauley. We hope you've enjoyed our visit to Santa Barbara by design. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. California, here I come, right back where I started from. Where flowers, the flowers bloom in the spring. Each morning, at dawning, birdies sing, and everything. A sun kiss, miss head, don't be late. That's why I can hardly wait. Open up that golden gate, California, here I come. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.